It indeed is a blessed occasion we have been given this morning, isn't it? As was mentioned, and certainly that which is well known to, to all of us, uh, travel conditions, matters of, of great uh, character that bring treacherousness and danger, but yet we're so thankful for everyone that's here, thankful that things with you and with me are as safe as they are and allowed us this opportunity to assemble even this morning. Certainly we'd like to continue to thank those who made arrangements and plans in regard to uh, the possibility that my, my family, uh, Denise and I, wouldn't be able to be here. All those plans were in place, but we're so thankful for, for your well wishes and kindness and prayers that also God's blessing has allowed us to be with you. We weren't looking forward to not being able to be with our Christian family today. Jeff just led us in a song a moment ago entitled, There's Power in the Blood. And I asked Jeff to lead that, and he was so kind to do it, because it really does, of course, match very closely the title that I've chosen for the lesson today, Power in the Blood. Over the next few moments this morning, I would invite you to consider a very powerful and a very amazing set of considerations touching the topic and the concept of blood. The introductory remarks, I suppose, would be fair, and let me at least begin them like this. Those in the medical profession could speak to you and me at length about the importance of blood. They could give us a dissertation on the essentiality of it and the necessity of it and the uniqueness of that fluid we call blood. It allows the proper operation of so many features within the human body. I'd like to ask you to notice interestingly a comment, at least that I found very interesting. You'll notice at the top of this particular slide, a spokesman for the American Blood Centers said it so well. There is no substitute for blood. It cannot be made or manufactured. Have you ever thought about the fact that there are organizations that ask for us to donate blood? There's not a laboratory on earth that can make it. It is that special and that unique. I'd submit to you, though, at the bottom of that slide, it does bring us, of course, to what is a far greater import to you and me this morning. The Bible speaks so frequently about blood. Over 450 times in the King James Bible, the word blood is used in one form or another. And of course, you and I know that there are times when there are usages and reflections on the blood of animals and things like that, but by far, the most special, the most important, the most powerful usage has reference to the blood of Jesus Christ. Over the next few moments, you and I will study then, what about the power of that blood of Christ? What's it able to accomplish, and how does it do it? As we look at those things, the various items that follow will try to highlight in a pictorial fashion the features of the lesson today. A number of these slides to follow will have a progression in them. I would ask, as you read the slide with me, start at the bottom left from your perspective and read toward the top right. And as you and I study these verses one by one, we will be led to appreciate some amazing power in the blood of Jesus Christ. First of all, bottom left. You may not be able to read that in its fullness, but the word is separated from God. There is a situation, a phenomenon in which individuals, in sin of course, are separated from God. The ancient writer, of course, God speaking through Isaiah, put it like this in Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And if he is face from you, that he will not hear. 
God described very thoroughly, didn't he? One of the things that sin brings, it brings a distancing, a separating, if you please, from God. An individual mired in ungodliness, still living with the fullness of the guilt of his or her sins, is separated from God. You'll also notice, in light of that though, there's a marvelous intervention on the part of God, so move to the next block, if you will, the middle one on that slide, of course, now we come to the blood of Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, an individual then in sin is separated from God, but look at what Christ's blood causes and what it brings about. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse number 12 and continuing on the two verses that follow, speak about the nature and the character of what Christ's blood causes. Paul stated it like this that there was a time when, as he spoke about these individuals who were distanced from God, he said, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That does sound like a hopeless situation, doesn't it? They were strangers from all of God's covenant blessings. But then he says in the next verse, but you've been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that closes that chasm, brings one who was distanced from God, brings him or her now close to God. No wonder Christ's blood is highlighted again in Colossians 1 verse 20, a sister passage to that same idea, made nigh, brought near by the blood of Christ. The final block on that slide is, of course, the top right. And so now look at what the state of affairs is. Those individuals who at once were separated from God but who now have made contact with Christ's blood, look at where they are now. They're made near. They enjoy fellowship with God, 1 John 1, verses 3 and 4. It is such that they now are able to walk with him. Can two walk together except they be agreed? The famous question of Amos 3, verse 3. No wonder then this opening slide has pointed us to one thing Christ's blood does, you'll notice it closes the separation that exists between the sinner and God. What else does Christ's blood do? Some other verses take us now into this direction. In Matthew chapter 18, we have a description of a very sad condition. You'll notice at the bottom, Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35, a lengthy passage reminding us of a very interesting record. It's a story the Lord told, and it's so very memorable. Jesus taught of a great king who himself made a reckoning of his servants, and a servant was found who owed him 10,000 talents, far, far more than that servant could ever pay. And yet he besought the king, Have mercy upon me, and the king forgave him all the debt. Sadly enough, though, that same servant went out, and you may remember that someone else owed him a measly little amount, a hundred pence. That same servant, who himself owed the other one, he also begged, Have mercy upon me, but the first servant would not. Cast him into prison. Ultimately, you and I remember the king found out what the servant who had been forgiven had done. He then came, called him back in, and he said, I had forgiveness and mercy for you, but you did not show any compassion and forgiveness to another. Therefore, you're going to have to pay the whole debt. Jesus closed that by saying and using it to impress upon us the state of affairs of you and me. 
in sin were unjustified. That brings us to thought of a law circumstance, doesn't it? When a person enters a court of law and ultimately faces charges, it could be that he ends up being justified in that he is basically acquitted of all the things of which he's been accused. He's able to go free. That king, of course, forgave that first servant until he learned what he had done. And then he ultimately required him to pay. You'll notice in that state of sin, we owe far, far more than we ever can pay. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4. None of us could by our own volition make appeal to being worthy of heaven. I can't be good enough by myself. And neither can you. Notice the middle block brings us to Christ's blood. If heaven was no hope for me in my own state, what about the interposition of Christ's blood? But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Romans 5 verse 9. And there again, that phrase appears, justified by his blood. Every one of us that are Christians know very well that by our own efforts we could not have attained in meritorious way desiring heaven, but by Christ's blood we've been justified. And there have been those who've expressed that word justified is just as if I had not sinned. And in many ways that has a lot of truth to that description of that verb, doesn't it? Just as if I had not sinned. So this person who has now contacted Christ's blood who at one time was unjustified, what is then stated about that person at the top right side of this slide? As Paul described in a beautiful lesson and a powerful prescription in Acts chapter 13 verses 38 and 39, he spoke to these individuals there in the ancient city of Antioch and it was to them that he said, you could never be justified by the law of Moses. But now... Through Christ, you have been justified. You are justified. And that's a description, of course, for all of us that are the Christians of our day. Unjustified at one time and now justified. Our sins have been forgiven. And you and I are able to walk in harmony. In a court of law, you and I have been set free from the shackles and the bondage that comes with sin. Christ's blood, very powerful, isn't it? What else does Christ's blood do besides close that separation between us and God and justify? May I submit? What about the word sanctify? Look again, please, with me at the lower left-hand side. We know that there are several prescriptions, descriptions, if you please, in the Bible, reminding us of that state of individuals who themselves have yet to contact the blood of Christ. One of the descriptions is unsanctified. Again, if you're not able to read all of the words, it's unsanctified here at the bottom left. We might well start in 2 Timothy 2.21. As Paul addressed his young son in the faith, Timothy, it was to them that he commented, they're individuals who themselves are unsanctified and not meet for the master's use. Their life at this point is unfit. It is still unsanctified. After all, the word sanctify means to set apart, to consecrate, to especially designate for particular usage. These individuals who themselves were unsanctified, Paul described the Corinthians at one time in their life like that. 
in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, after commenting that, there are some who will never, ever be able to see heaven. And he then describes, at that time you were unsanctified. It does remind us then that we haven't been set apart to God until we've contacted the blood of Christ. For after all, look at the middle block now. Here, the state of unsanctification is now so wonderfully changed as we come to appreciate Christ's blood and the interposition of it. In Hebrews 13, verse number 12, speaking about the very sacrifice of Christ, he went outside and suffered without the gate, but a very interesting statement is made. Sanctified them with his blood. Every one of us, if we're sanctified at all, it can only happen by virtue of the blood of Christ. But with that blood, that means we are now set apart. We are now designated for particular usage and meat for the master's use. We're sanctified to his cause and holy declared in that way. No wonder you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 1 verse number 2, as Paul addressed the church in Corinth, now having been sanctified, he described them as saints of God and sanctified unto the Lord. The Pippin Church today, of course, we desire to have a description like that. Sanctified unto the Lord. One more time, the blood of Christ maybe leads us to one final observation. Hebrews 2 verses 11 and 12 comment that just as surely as the blood of Christ was shed, it is only through that blood that you and I can sing the marvelous song that comes with being a part of the family of God. Sanctified. Three times we've seen the power in Christ's blood. What about a fourth element, a fourth idea that that blood can bring about? Number four, cleanses. Again, please look at the bottom left with me. The state of affairs of those who have yet to make contact with the blood of Christ, the word there is unclean. Look at some of these verses. I would ask you to notice Psalm 51, verse number 7. As David made a description of his own consideration, we understand well that by that point in his life he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He furthermore had been guilty of murder, killing her husband, and he'd been guilty of drunkenness and associating with those who were not proper in the sight of God. But yet in Psalm 51, 7, he pleaded with God to cleanse me and purge me with hyssop. He knew that he was not clean spiritually at that point. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 18, the other passage you'll notice at the bottom left, it seems somewhat fitting, at least pictorially, for us to think about a verse like that one today. A comparison is made in that verse to snow. Isn't it amazing how quite snow is? As it's falling, isn't it remarkable how white it is? Now, it's not white after it stays on the ground very long and been scraped off a roadway, but isn't it beautiful to consider the purity and the whiteness and the uncontaminated character of pure snow? God says in that verse, I'll make your sins as white. Though they are now as scarlet, I'll make them as white. Scarlet, of course, is a deep red color. It doesn't have the pureness of white. It doesn't have the associated qualities of uncontaminated nature as white does. Surely, in light of that, God says, that which is now scarlet, I'll make it pure as wool and as white. Look at what does that, middle block. 
What is it that is able to cleanse? 1 John 1 verse 7 puts it like this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. What is it that cleanses? Christ's blood. Not only does it justify, not only does it close that gap of separation, not only does it sanctify, but it also cleanses. It is still a remarkable thing to consider, isn't it, that a life that is seen from the perspective of God to be so black with sin, and yet application of the blood of Christ takes the guilt of those sins away, removes it entirely, and that individual can now stand pure and justified and absolutely spotless in the sight of God. Christ's blood can do that. No wonder then the top right makes a description of it like this. The very last book in all of the book of God, Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, it was on that occasion he said, You've been washed from your sins in his blood. The word wash, we know what it means to wash a floor or to wash clothes or to wash dishes, and yet you and I are able to be washed from our sins, but the detergent that does it is the blood of Christ. Notice, good works by themselves do not accomplish it. Prayer by itself does not accomplish it. Belief by itself does not accomplish it. It takes the fullness of the blood of Christ. One by one, as we see the power latent in the blood of Christ, it's time for another. What about the aspect of redemption and forgiveness? Again, please look at the bottom left with me if you would. That state of being unforgiven that stay to be unredeemed. Many verses might be listed. I would bring these to your attention. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, reference is made to the prince of the power of the air. There is a force, and it's the devil himself, who is in control of so many and so much. And we know what an evil character he is. It is to that I would also ask you to consider Romans 5, 8 as well as the other verses that I've listed for you here. Unredeemed and unforgiven. No wonder in light of all that, look at chapter 9, verse 22 of Hebrews, if you would. That's a passage I'm sure we've each thought of already in light of the lesson this morning. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. So you and I know that then without the shedding of Christ's blood and making proper application of it, there is no remission at all of sin. Those sins stick, they remain. But look at what happens when we go to the middle block. Here we read Paul twice, almost verbatim statements. Ephesians 1 verse 7. He spoke in a passage like this one. Now we enjoy redemption, even the forgiveness of our sins. Through his blood. Through whose blood? Christ's blood. You'll notice in the Colossian letter, chapter 1, verse 14, a very similar statement. The forgiveness of sins, the remission thereof. But notice Paul said it's only through the blood of Christ. No wonder then in light of that, the very top slide brings us to Hebrews 9, verse number 12 where we have this statement that it was not with the blood of bulls and calves, it was not with the blood of goats or any such animal, but with his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Christ did that, and he entered with his blood. 
those priests of the Old Testament era, they would again slit the throat of a goat or some other animal and catch some of its blood in some kind of a vessel and carry it into the holy place. And that was the best they had at the time. But the Hebrew writer says Christ did not use the blood of a goat or a bullock. He entered in with his blood. And notice, he obtained eternal redemption with it. Hebrews 9 verse 12, not just temporary redemption, but eternal redemption. What great power there is in the blood of Christ. That power is seen in additional ways as well. These verbs that we've considered so far leads us to this one. What about the impact it has on the conscience? Again, bottom left, please. Those who are apart from Christ and those who have yet to contact His blood are such that they are said to have defiled an unpure conscience. That's interesting, isn't it? Titus 1 verse 15. At this point, we might well then ask, what can the blood of Christ do to such a circumstance? Middle block, please. Hebrews 9 verse 14 says that that same blood of Christ, continuing from the description of a moment ago, that same blood of Christ purges your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What then is the agent that purifies and cleanses the conscience? Christ's blood's what the Hebrew writer said. Isn't it amazing that our conscience, that portion of us that has an attribute toward considering good and bad and evil and right, we notice that from those dead works, that conscience can be purified, cleansed in the very word of purging that which is impure about it. This is beginning to be remarkable, isn't it? You'll notice then at the top right, Jesus said, Now you're clean through the words which I've spoken, John 15, 3. Maybe in light of all these things, this power to be found in the blood of Christ challenges us in wonderful ways. As you and I look at all of these, and so far many there have been, may I ask you to consider this. What else did that blood do? Consider the church for just a moment, if you would, with me. Bottom left. There was a time that there was no church of Jesus Christ. You and I know well that in Matthew 4.17, for instance, Jesus himself said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It, hadn't, it was not yet in existence at the time that verse was proclaimed. Later on in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. It wasn't even in existence then. However, as you and I will appreciate, all of that was to change. The church exists today, and it has now for almost 2,000 years. What brought it into existence? Middle block, please. Matthew, or rather, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. As Paul addressed the elders of the Ephesian congregation, it was to them, he said, Take heed to yourselves and to the church, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. The blood of Christ purchased that church. It wasn't purchased with silver and gold. It wasn't purchased with possessions and physical wealth. The blood of Jesus purchased it. No wonder then the top block reminds us that church is in existence and how blessed we are. Acts 2.47 says, The Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. Thus the saved now had a place. They had a family. They had an organization in which they were to survive in the church. Colossians 1.13 says, 
that that kingdom, they had been translated out of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, that blessed church. The blood of Christ purchased the church, and today aren't we so honored to be able to be a part of it. This church of which we now speak, the church of Jesus Christ, leads us to consider this. If Christ's blood purchased it, a fair question then surely would be to ask, then how does one enter that church? How do I or you become a part of it so that you and I can have our name enrolled in that proper place? Bottom left, please. The Bible gives description of those outside the church. It describes them as being lost. It describes them as being not prepared then to receive the marvelous eternal glory that shall rest upon those who are the faithful. At that point, you can notice some of these verses. Ephesians 5.23 perhaps so powerfully comes to mind. As Paul addressed the Ephesian congregation, he to them said, speaking about the body, the church, Jesus is the Savior of the body. There is a body, and we know it's the church. Colossians 1.18 tells us. So we recognize then that Christ's body is that church, and they and they only shall be saved. For again, Paul said, the body is the ones saved. So anybody not in the body, anybody not a member of that organization is not in position in Ephesians 5.23 to be saved. No wonder then it brings us to the middle block. What does Christ's blood do? The Hebrew writer so powerfully affirmed in Hebrews 10.19 that his blood brings entrance into the body. Whose blood? Christ's blood, not mine. No animal's. Christ's blood, entrance into that body, and therefore, top right, it puts those individuals in a position of being saved. Their names are written in the book of life. Their names are written in a position whereby they shall be able to partake in Revelation 19 of the marvelous feast of the marriage of the Lamb. For they are the bridegroom, or rather they are the bride of that bridegroom. Surely in light of all those things, we see even entrance into the church is predicated on the blood of Jesus Christ. Just a few final thoughts for your consideration this morning. Once one enters that church, you'll notice that something now should be said about life. Life itself. Bottom left. We notice that without blood there is no life. Our medical people will quickly tell us that. If you lose too much blood out of your body, you will soon die. What about spiritually? No blood, no life. Leviticus 17, 14 said that again, without blood, there is no life. Look at about the middle block. What did Jesus say in John six fifty three? He was speaking, of course, in great tenor about the nature of life in Christ and that which is dedicated to himself. But in the context, he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That's a very stern statement, isn't it? Without the blood of Christ, we have no life in us. Spiritually, we're dead. And no wonder then Paul told the Ephesians, in sins and trespasses, you were dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1. No wonder then at the top right we come to that blessed thought of being alive. John 10 verse 10 says, Jesus speaking, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Life. 
Isn't it great to be a Christian? Isn't it great to be associated with God in His body, the body of Christ, having the blood of Christ always at our disposal? Surely at one final verse, Colossians 2.13, helps us see about that beautiful operation of God and the life that we now enjoy in Him. I suppose all of these things have led to one final set of questions. We know now what power is in the blood of Christ, and we understand so easily about what things it can bring about. Surely the question has to be, surely the question must be, how then do I contact his blood? There's not a cross out here in the backyard. I can't go out there and take a cup and take some of Christ's blood. How do I reach it today? Thankfully, the Bible doesn't leave us to wonder. Christ's blood is approached, it's appropriated, it is contacted in but one way. Bottom left. So far today, we've looked at a whole host of verses, and they describe a state of affairs of individuals prior to their baptism. We saw that in the, in the Corinthian letter especially. Individuals that were unjustified, unsanctified, unforgiven, unredeemed, separated from God, outside the body. They were lost. Middle block. Upon their baptism, they now are described as having reached the blood of Christ. They have appropriated its benefits. And I would ask you to look at some of these verses. Mark 16, 16, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And yet we notice salvation was a critical consequence to contacting his blood. We notice in 1 Peter 3.21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is what saves us. Thirdly, what about Acts 22.16? Here was a man, namely, at that time, Saul of Tarsus. He, of course, had been critically himself involved in persecuting the church in fact, trying to destroy Christianity. However, on that road to Damascus, he saw Jesus Christ and spoke with him. Jesus told him, you go into Damascus, and it'll be told you what you must do. Ananias, by the direction of God, came, spoke with him, and he said in Acts twenty-two sixteen, And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized? And do what? Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That man was in sin until he was baptized, despite the fact he had spoken with Jesus, despite the fact he had for three days been penitent, he was still in his sin. It was not until he was baptized by that disciple Ananias in the city of Damascus that he rose from that watery grave of baptism, sanctified, justified, unseparated from God, and now saved. That's an impression of what powers in the blood, isn't it? Maybe one final thought would be that text in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Where is life found? After baptism and not until. No wonder at the top right then we have this description. Those who've been baptized, washed in the blood of the Lamb, are the very ones who are encircling the throne of God forevermore, saved in heaven. 
Surely the power and the blood that we've seen in this lesson brings us to a conclusion. What power is in the blood? What power, both Old and New Testament, even the Old Testament foretold about the shedding of Christ's blood. And it highlights today where that blood is found and contacted. If there's anyone in this audience today who hasn't contacted his blood and you now know with me that that's only in baptism, please think with urgency about your current state. None of us are promised tomorrow. Proverbs 27.1 says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. The sun may not rise tomorrow anywhere on earth, for there may be no earth. Even if that is the case, even if earth were to stand, you and I might have passed away. Why not make your calling and election sure today? 2 Peter 1 verse number 10 says, Make your calling and election sure powers in the blood. If you need to contact that blood today, it may be that, of course, you are an erring child of God. That is to say, you have at one time been baptized and you live faithfully, but you have wandered away from that blood. You again are separated and you need to come back and it's only Christ's blood, 1 John 1, 7, that can cleanse you. You contact that again as you come forward today and if it's of public nature, you ask brethren to pray for you borrowing the commandments of Acts chapter 8 and James chapter 5. But if you are one who's never rendered initial obedience to the gospel, you have never been baptized. I realize the religious world considers it a controversial topic, but there's nothing controversial about it. Jesus couldn't have been clearer. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you want to be saved, you must be baptized. And today, if you want to contact His blood... Though it's cold outside, the baptistry behind me is ready and we'd be delighted to celebrate and rejoice with you. If today we could help you, we would ask that you make a statement of your belief in the form of confession following, of course, the attribute of your repentance and we'd be delighted to baptize you in water for the remission of your sins. If we could help you today, don't delay, but come even now while together we stand and while we sing.